Welcome, you are listening to Links at Bain & Gray, a catalogue of podcasts centred on all things business support in the workplace. Our aim is to bring you interesting and relevant content that will keep you up to date and thriving in your role. Today I am talking to Ginny Chadwick-Healy, founder of VCH Style, writer, presenter, real focus on consumerism and, and products and fashion and all great things. So Ginny, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Trey. Um, for the benefit of our listeners today, would you please give me a bit of a brief synopsis of your career history to date? So going right back to the beginning, I, I went to St Andrews in Scotland and uh, met my lovely husband. But more than that, I did an art history degree. Um, so really, I should be at Christie's or Sotheby's. But I knew deep down that I always wanted to work in fashion and being really honest, I didn't really know what that meant. I thought I wanted to go to Central St. Martins. Anyway, I really squirreled away. I built up my CV and I, right place, right time, I found myself at British Vogue and ended up staying for 12 years. So, And that was your first job post-university? That was my first job and you really start from the bottom and... Yeah, I mean, I didn't realise how much I was learning at the time, put it that way. But it was a great place to work. The Devil Wears Prada came out whilst we were there. Everyone thinks it's horrible and bitchy and and it's really not. It was wonderful. But I did start on the commercial side. So I was actually selling Mm. advertising. And then I clocked the job that I wanted to do and sort of you have to wait your turn, wait your turn. And and it was the retail editor of Vogue. And and that was the job I ended up doing for about four years, which... Mm sort of led me on so what 12 years later what what sort of was the moment where you thought about vch style and and how that was going to come about i'd love to know how many people can relate but ultimately having had two children i could not make it work i couldn't make the finances work and i couldn't justify leaving my children we'd moved out of london as well and commuting and i remember i was running back through the station car park late back from a work um, event in Liverpool and I just I don't like the dark and I thought (laughs) what am I doing I think something's got to give and my husband actually said do you know what you're bringing home the bags but you're not bringing home the bacon so it's that (laughs) annoying moment where you realize something's got to change and honestly it actually was triggered I guess by um, the Telegraph picking up an article that I'd pitched and it was simply called um, I've I worked at Vogue for 12 years. Now I've left. Here's what I really wear. Mm. And it was that moment where I realised everything I'd learned at Vogue, worked on at Vogue, all those kind of 10 great items to Mm. ask for this Christmas or 20 things you've got to have this spring. I was like, the reality is women aren't shopping like that. That's not people's real lives. Yeah, yeah. I think that that point about motherhood juggling with the job will will resonate with lots of listeners. Um, So... You thought there was going to be a sort of new career pathway. VCH style, I think I'm right in saying, started out originally as a styling and potentially yeah. was going to be sort of personal styling and shopping it with really, private clients. And then it's sort of reinvented itself over the last few years. Is that right? Tell, so, tell us about VCH style. To be honest, it's a reflection of what I did at Vogue as retail editor. You are pretty much public facing. You are wheeled out for events, you give trend talks to the industry insiders. I mean, I was presenting the Vogue report to the fashion and beauty industry. And so I kind of lent on my strengths and I love writing. So I, I really was lucky to fall on my feet with The Telegraph as a contributor and started mm. a regular column with them. And I really enjoy 
public speaking. I, I don't get too nervous about it. Um, but it was really encouraging women to find more confidence from their clothes. I think it's an age-old conundrum that so many women struggle with. So I really just used uh, my network and I was fortunate enough to land my first event with Ralph Lauren as a, a styling event mm. in store. So yes, it was styling, but naturally I was basically saying to my clients, you really don't need to buy every item you see advertised. And combine that with this massive swell of activity in social media, I think people were getting more and more confused. And so I I got a bit bossy, to be honest. And Mm. naturally, it led to an inclination to research more about sustainability, to understand the fabrics, to understand what's really going on behind the scenes at these brands in terms of forecasting, in terms of uh, workers' rights, in terms of asking the awkward questions, and then channeling that into my writing. But I'll be honest, it wasn't easy. I don't think mainstream media are still that interested in sustainability. I was going to ask you about, you know, how you determine your message to the market, because there's lots of use the pun, but threads across the fashion (laughs) industry in terms of sort of messaging. And, you know, there's um, companies... uh, trying to acquire the B Corp status in the, in the fashion space is is becoming an increasing thing. But you might tell me that that's still very low level in that space. But how do, how do you determine what messaging you're putting to market? Or is this very personal to you in terms of what yeah, your I mean, I hate are. to admit it, everybody, but there's no business plan. I've never even written a business <laughs> plan. It comes very naturally to me. And my main thing is that I have to tread a very fine line between encouraging and brainwashing because I'm not a scientist. I'm not a sustainability expert. I have not studied it. No one has all the answers, not even the scientists. Mm. But um, so I tread this fine line in order to maintain attention of my audience, whether it's, a, you know, my mother reading The Telegraph or it's, um, you know, a kind of a lot of teenagers now getting in touch for work experience, which is great. So there's an interest across a broad range. But if I start hounding people with information and making them feel guilty, quite frankly, they're going to roll their eyes and turn on their heel and head straight back into Zara. And that's so I'm I'm in terms of my social media, I definitely strike a balance between serious content and really reminding people what their clothes are made of or the charities they should be supporting with their unwanted garments but also I share like the fun side of my life with my kids and but I I don't want to kind of brainwash hopefully they get a balanced approach to Mm. both. It's interesting um, in terms of the different messaging around sustainability I suppose online are you able to see that there is more engagement with some of your messages than others perhaps sustainability being one of them Uh, weirdly one of my you know I can see how many views various videos get and honestly one of the most successful things I've done is showing people how to get more wear out of their own wardrobes and just making a point that actually you don't need to be shopping at the rate we've all grown accustomed to Mm. and an address that you buy in spring can easily work for winter. And that's what I then take as an idea, for instance, to, well, after this, I'm going to work with Bowdoin. And everyone would probably think, oh, they're not very sustainable, are they? Well, actually, a machine as big as Bowdoin, you can't change overnight. But I get to put my own imprint on the on the editorial we create. So you sort of get that messaging out through mm. consultancy, but also to my own audience. But 
But I think there is an interest. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going away. This topic is never going away. Well, and I think, you know, your point there about buying fewer items and being more considered with what we're purchasing has got to be more relevant in this current economic climate than it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, I dare I say it, but I feel like the only silver lining from this cost of living crisis, which we are all feeling, um, obviously some more than others, but I do think the natural inclination would be to to just not shop because you can't afford it. And possibly that is a positive for those of us who are trying to encourage a slower pace mm. of consumerism and consumption because uh, there's a report recently that came out and, and ultimately we should all be aiming to buy just five things every year if we really want to slow down. And I've just walked down Carnaby Street and the colour and the glitter and the lights and the people standing in the street saying, do you want to come in and try this for free? It's really enticing. It's really, it's quite it's overwhelming. It's a real pool, a yeah. marketing pool, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's um, five items sounds sounds quite hard just to only buy five items. But isn't that great? Oh. I've actually, um, the former uh, editor of Harris Magazine told me about this and uh, she, uh, Tiffany Dark is her name and she is doing it. And, you know, you can rent and all mm. that kind of thing, but ultimately it makes you think, do I really need it? What are the gaps in my wardrobe? And will the novelty wear off? I think that's a big question for a lot of people because mm. we're all used to photographing items and being seen at events. But ultimately it does make you reassess what do you really get joy from? Mm. Not even what do you need, what what do you get joy from in the long run and who can you perhaps hand it on to when the time comes, you mm. know? Do you think um, Generation Z, you know, the under 30s are, are, are more conscious about purchasing and, and, and where they're spending their money and what they're spending it on? Well, they're very vocal about uh, values. And I think that has probably prompted the shift in the fashion industry that most of us had hoped for a long time ago. But you know, they also get a lot of joy out of things, I think. And I'm only assuming this because I don't have teenagers, but, you know, Trey, we were talking about your children. Mm. You know, they don't necessarily go shopping anymore no. on a Saturday because everything's, you know, they can have it at the flick, flick of a, or tap of a screen, as it were. Yeah. So that notion of going shopping is no longer a pastime per se, um, because they get as much joy from going out for a frappuccino as they do mm. from buying a new item of clothing. And also, I think the trend right now is is probably athleisure, which is affordable to quite a broad range of society. And also the notion of shopping on Depop and reinventing something you were given and selling it on. like That has prompted every brand to wake up and think oh my gosh they're not they're not the audience of the future that we thought they were mm, that is so true you know vinted and depop it's you know huge. are hugely popular with teenagers aren't they yeah. yeah what about um trends versus personal style you know how does one decipher sort of fashion trends that come and go and, and sort of spend money wisely oh this is such a great question um because i mean ultimately style i don't think can be bored I think you you are your own person and I really encourage this whether it's me going through someone's wardrobe and decluttering or working with Smartworks the charity I'm an ambassador for you know you own your own style clothing can help but ultimately if you're someone that currently would admit to buying into every trend that you're reading about or seeing on social media or you know you're exposed to because we're exposed to it and we don't even realize it's happening 
I think you possibly got to question, is it filling a void that maybe there's something else that, you know, you could actually fill that moment with other than shopping and just, like I said, slow down. Mm. For me, and I, I speak as someone who has experience, I've amassed a great wardrobe, but I know my own style and so I know what fits me and I'm really happy to say that I don't have a really clumpy pair of oversized boots because I know they look awful on me. Mm. But my goodness, I was tempted for the last two years. We've seen them on everybody. Yep. And I I was like, don't do it, don't do it. So I know my own style, but I get it. It's hard when you're being you know, shouted at from every which way. So I would say you've got to start asking questions like, do I really like this item or am I just, you know, following the crowd or my friends have all got it so therefore I think I should. Can I actually afford the item? I think most of us would admit to spending, overspending. Um, I think things like Klarna are really dangerous and mm. actually they've been marketed in a really beautiful pink way, haven't they, to speak to an audience who really possibly can't afford to, to shop at the rate that they want to. And I think you've also got to work out, have I, have I already got five of whatever I'm looking to buy? You know, the the trend for oversized collars. I only have one, but mm. I know people that bought 10. And you know what? It's it's over. And I would say don't stop wearing them, but equally don't be a slave to them. Um, you know, yeah. just, just choose what you really love and what you can afford and try to fill in the gaps of yeah. your wardrobe. Makes complete sense. Um, you write for Grazia and you contribute to The Telegraph. Um, what drives the content for some of that? Is that all your personal sort of ideas and thoughts and curated sort of so, conversation? Uh, I can honestly say The Telegraph have never said, by the way, you need to support this advertiser because I make it a real point of, by have, have I got to support them in any way? Because that's how it worked at Vogue. You know, if you were Chanel you right. had to get your fair share of editorial coverage given the amount you were spending in the magazine in terms of advertising. So at The Telegraph, I wasn't led by advertisers, which was great. And mostly I, I was given the autonomy to to write about what I wanted. And in COVID, it sort of adapted to focus on British brands doing good. And then it became more about um, finding those pieces that really will work um, long term and they're future proof and perhaps you can adapt them to different occasions. So naturally, I was bringing it into my writing. But as I said earlier, I don't think mainstream media are really on top of it. Mm. Purely because you've got to keep the advertisers happy. And if you've got Marks and Spencers spending X hundreds of thousands of pounds in advertising, you've got to give them that coverage. So if you then get Ginny coming along saying, I oh, buy five <laughs> items this year, I'm sorry, it's not going to wash. So I have to be realistic, but I would definitely say my focus for Grazia in, in going green, it's a tiny column, but it actually indicates that maybe there's an appetite amidst that audience, which I'm really pleased with. Mm. And I have a good relationship with the editor, but that's just more of a tips, like how to go green in terms of fashion consumption. But ultimately, I vet every item I recommend. And that's quite a lot of work behind the scenes Mm. that I don't think people realise. So I always look at fabrics and I, you know, tend to look at the overall um, picture of the brand. And there is a lot of greenwashing, so I probably don't get it right the whole time. But it's, there's more research that goes into my writing than I think people think. There might be apparent, yeah. I mean, that's fascinating though, isn't it? You're doing all the legwork for your readers. That's great. (laughs) How, with such a busy schedule, how do you organise yourself? Do you have a PA or how do you manage your admin side of life? No, I don't have a PA, but occasionally I do employ a remote PA for when I can see it's going to get really busy. Mm. Um, And that is brilliant 
brilliant resource that I've kind of learnt of last year. And I mean, that's I'm great. Sure someone you, know you can flex yeah. hours up and down. And... Well, someone who I'll actually go through my inbox because yeah. there's about brilliant. 60 emails unread. Mm. I get a lot of drops. That's not too bad. 60. That... <laughs> I, get so... I mean, yesterday well. I got a press release on Love Island. And the day before I got, you know, I'm getting press releases from everybody because as a journalist, you get that amazing access but do I really I don't want to know about Love Island I don't want to know about Vogue Williams for Misguided or whatever it is Mm. and so you have to really sort through yeah and sift through what's important and what's not so what's next for you and VCH style so I'm trying to juggle um research with um consultancy uh so for instance last week I was talking to a lady in Slovenia who I would actually really like to do some work with and I purely I just found her through a lot of research and then digging deep and mm. finding her on YouTube so I do I, the research to me keeps keeps me um, I guess relevant and more of a uh, a force for good and which then leads into my consultancy because like I said this topic isn't going away I'm I've got a meeting for instance next week I've got a meeting with the Telegraph and I will I will pitch some stories um, in a bid to kind of get back on track with that. And then I'm going off today to do consultancy for a brand. I mean, the big, the big, the big projects are with the likes of Tencel, which is sustainable mm. fabric. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many avenues to tap into, but ultimately, and I think it's very important to cover this, I have three children, I have a mortgage and I have to make money. And so I I have to, the research doesn't pay. And so Mm. I have to be really candid about that. Like I I only have so much time to research, but ultimately I have to also look for the next projects. But I would also love to do a podcast, but that I would have to find a sponsor for. I think it's only going to work if you have a a sponsor behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So just as a bit of fun for, as a sort of last question to you today, Three items, if well, you said five actually earlier, but if we're just buying three, what three items are kind of sort of fail-safes to have in your wardrobe if we're buying a lot less in the future? Well, because I thought everyone would guess what I was going to say, I've slightly gone off-piste, bar one. <laughs> actually, no, not really. Um, because they won't ever date, I've opted for a pair of loafers because they are really easy to smarten up an outfit. And if you can get away with wearing a very smart pair of jeans to work on occasion, they look great with jeans too. And you could probably still hold your own in the boardroom with them. Um, They also are great like with all those dresses that we've bought, which apparently are now out of fashion. That's a whole other topic. Um, (laughs) A striped shirt, because stripes will never date. Uh, And thin stripes, wide stripes, you know, bright colours it, it could be anything I think they're they're very very classic very cool and they can be worn undone with a polo neck underneath or they can be worn over a bikini or a swimsuit they're, they're mm. very cool and this is really random but I put scrunchies I think scrunchies should come back Trey and I think they're not going to break the bank and they just add a bit more excitement to a ponytail or a bun and mm. I think we all <laughs> Amazing. You weren't expecting that. <laughs> no, were you? I really wasn't. <laughs> scrunchies. You had it here first. I'll get you a scrunchie. Um, Ginny Chadwick Healy, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been really interesting. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thanks.